listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our reading today is from Revelation in your pew Bible, if you'd care to follow along, page 1007 and 1008, starting um, with verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. Going on to verse nine. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowels full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, come, I will show you the bride the wife of the Lamb. And in this spirit, he carried me away to a great high mountain and showed me in the holy holy city of Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It has the glory of God and a radiance like a very rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. I saw no temple in the city, moving ahead to 22, For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God is its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Here ends our morning reading. Thanks, Martha. Good morning, everyone. So I stand before you this morning as the survivor of a four-year-old's birthday party. Yeah. We had about like 10 or 12 kids at the house yesterday, like 10. We had a bounce house. Uh, it was Miriam's birthday. She turned four. Um, we had a pinata. It was a lot of fun. No one was lost or injured. Um, Aaron and I survived, but it is good uh, to be here in the house of the Lord with you today. <clears throat> We're in the season after Easter, <clears throat> what's traditionally called Eastertide. And we're also in the midst of a sermon series that's been exploring the themes of resurrection, new creation, and the Christian hope. We've been working through a lot of really big ideas over the course of this series, a lot of like paradigm-shifting stuff, I think. We've talked about bodies and souls and how the Bible puts forward a more holistic view of the human person that uh, integrates the physical with the spiritual. We talked about incarnation, the idea of God taking on flesh and dwelling among us. 
We looked at a bunch of fancy Greek and Hebrew words, stuff like logos and sarks and nefesh. I don't know if this is ringing any bells for the folks who've been here. This is some really big stuff um, that's probably new for a lot of us. And I just want to remind you about the yellow cards in your bulletin. Um, This is how you can submit a question about a sermon. There's even a little box on here, I have a question about the sermon. And if we get enough of these turned in, we've gotten a few questions, uh, we might actually do a Q&A style sermon in a few weeks to wrap up this series. So keep that handy, um, and if you have questions, put it on that card and drop it in the offering plate at the end of our service. Last week, we really narrowed our focus. We got to the personal level, applying some of these big ideas to how we understand ourselves, bodies, and souls. This week, I want to zoom out a little bit and apply some of the stuff we're working to, or working with, to heaven and earth. What's the relationship between heaven and earth? If your church experience growing up was anything like mine, you were probably taught that there isn't much of a relationship between heaven and earth. We often think of heaven and earth as like polar opposites, like there's a a chasm, 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 a hole. It's a big hole (laughs) between heaven and earth. Earth's the realm of human beings. Heaven is God's territory. Earth is where we are now. Heaven is where we hope to be someday. For many Christians, it seems like heaven and earth probably couldn't be further apart, which is a bit strange, because the Bible has this tendency to hold heaven and earth together. In the very first verse of the Bible, we're told that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Throughout the pages of Scripture, God is praised as the Lord of heaven and earth. In Deuteronomy, when the Israelites rebel against God, God calls heaven and earth to witness against them and to witness to the covenant he's made with them. And of course, in the New Testament, we have Jesus, who teaches his disciples to pray for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. I went on a website called Bible Gateway this week where you can actually search for phrases in the Bible. I typed in heaven and earth, and I found 242 instances where heaven and earth are paired together in Scripture. So a lot of us have been taught to keep heaven and earth separate, but Scripture seems intent on bringing them together, which is interesting. Now, in our world today, I think there are two kind of extreme views on the relationship of heaven and earth. Um, One of these views is more prevalent in the church, and one is more prevalent in sort of like secular culture, but I think it's helpful sometimes to examine the extremes Because oftentimes we find the truth somewhere in the middle of the two extremes. And in a lot of churches, Christians have embraced this sense of pessimistic escapism. We think the goal is to get out of here, to escape earth and go to heaven. Some Christians will actually talk about the earth as a waiting room. Have you ever heard this kind of language used? It's like we hang out here for like 70 or 80 years if we're lucky. We have jobs, we raise families, we make a life for ourselves, but that's all temporary. That's all passing away. The real action's in heaven. And no matter how meaningful your life here on earth might be or might feel, this is really just a holding cell, a waiting room, 
until we go there. It's kind of like the idea we talked about last week of the body being a prison for the soul, only applied to the whole universe. Now, this mindset is all over our hymnals. We find it in songs like All Fly Away, which I will attempt to sing for you. There you go. If you don't know the song, that's one bright morning when this life is over, I'll fly away. I stayed in one octave there. That was good. And like, I I really don't want to mess up anyone's funeral plans or anything like that, but I really don't like that song. I am not a fan. I've told Aaron a few times that I don't care what happens at my funeral. I just don't want anyone singing All Fly Away. Because that, the message of that song, the hope reflected in that song, is one of escape. But I believe God has called us to engagement. I shared an article on Facebook uh, a few weeks ago about climate change. Uh, it was one of those doom and gloom articles about how the earth is warming so bad that there's irreparable damage being done. And a friend of mine who's a Christian replied with some pushback. But he wasn't questioning the science piece of it or anything like that. His response was, who cares? Why should Christians care what happens to the earth, what happens to the environment? The earth's all going to just burn up someday anyway, and we'll be in heaven. Do you see how dangerous a view like that can be? Do you see how the implications of something like that could lead us through some very dark territory? That's pessimistic escapism. A lot of Christians have been convinced that the earth is just going to pass away someday, and the good news is that we'll be somewhere else when it happens. And I want to contrast that with the dominant view in much of our culture, which is more of this naive, evolutionary optimism. Ever since the Enlightenment, human beings have kind of convinced ourselves that progress is inevitable. Life is just going to get better and better. Each generation is going to be better off than the one before it. Economies are just going to keep growing. Society is going to become more and more forward-thinking. Technology is going to help us solve all the world's problems. Evolutionary optimism declares that we can make heaven on earth if we work at it hard enough. And I think we've all seen how that has kind of gone awry. So if these are our two extremes, if these are the two poles, you've got evolutionary uh, optimism on the one end, pessimistic escapism on the other, what's a third option? What radical alternative to those two extremes do we find in the pages of Scripture? Well, when I look at the Bible, I see a view of the earth that's not so much pessimistic or optimistic as it is realistic. We might call it biblical realism. The Bible is nothing if not realistic in how it handles the connection between heaven and earth. Heaven and earth, scripturally speaking, are both part of God's good yet broken creation. Originally, heaven and earth were together. Think Genesis 1. Think the Garden of Eden. But over time, sin and death have crept into the picture, tearing heaven and earth apart. In fact, there's a good argument for reading the entire Bible as a story of heaven and earth being created, 
ripped apart, and then slowly stitched back together in Christ. And that brings me to our Bible passage for today, Revelation 21. If you want a vision of like the end of history, the climax toward which the universe is heading, Revelation 21 is it. One of my favorite passages, page 1001 in our Pew Bibles. I'm going to reread some of what Martha read us. Revelation 21, beginning in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, behold, look, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. Now, if we're not really careful, we can read our pessimistic escapism into this passage, especially that stuff about the first things passing away. Notice, though, in verse 1, it's not the earth that passes away to be replaced by heaven. It's heaven and earth that have passed away to be made new. That's resurrection language. This is the concept of resurrection, what's happened in Jesus applied to the whole of creation. Something has passed away only for God to recreate it. And there's that one really weird line at the end of verse 1. The sea was no more. There's no longer any sea. That's always thrown me off. Is anyone else kind of like, what's up with that? Like, what does the Bible have against the sea? Will there be no fishing in heaven? Like, why was Jesus hanging out with fishermen? Here's what's going on there. See if we can bring some clarity to this. And it actually fits with what we're talking about. When we think about the earth, we imagine something like this right? When I say the earth, this is what you think of. Unless you're a flat earther, then you think of something very different, but for the rest of us, this is what we think of when we think of earth. I can tell flat earth is not a big thing here, because there should have been more laughter. But see, here's the thing. The ancient world, the first century, they'd never seen anything like this. They did not think of this when they thought of the earth. We've only seen this picture for the last few decades. This is a really new way to view the earth. People living in Bible times, the ancient world, when they thought of the earth, they pictured something like this. And boy, that is going to be hard for some of you to read on the screens there. I'll give you a minute to kind of take that all in. Hopefully you can pick up some of that. I'll walk through it a bit. This is how the ancient world envisioned the universe. The black island-looking thing down there toward the bottom, that's earth. That's dry land, and it rests on literal pillars. You see that? And then you have the sea. That's kind of the gray in this picture, or it's supposed to be gray. That's like the water. And the sea actually stretches under the earth and above the earth. The whole thing would be water, except that there's a firmament or a dome separating the waters below the earth from the waters above. And then above that, you get heaven, where God lives. This language is all over our Bibles. 
This is the way biblical authors would have understood the composition of our universe, like spatially. And if one of the fundamental problems with creation is the separation between heaven and earth, well then spatially speaking, what is it that stands between heaven and earth? Water. It's the sea. The waters above and the water below, that's what's separating the two. So in Revelation, when John is given this vision of a new heaven and a new earth joined together, there's no longer any sea. There's nothing separating earth from heaven. The two have essentially become one. That's what John's talking about. So fishing is fine. You can fish as much as you want or don't. That's up to you. There's nothing biblically wrong with fishing. Continuing on in Revelation 21, jumping down in verse 9, there's more here. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And in the spirit he carried me away to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It has the glory of God and a radiance like a very rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God is its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Beautiful picture of heaven and earth coming back together. And in this new creation, there's no more temples, because God's dwelling is on earth. We don't need temples anymore. Temples kind of manifest God's presence. You don't need that when God has moved into the neighborhood. And there's no sun or moon in this new creation, partly because God's glory provides light, but if we go back to the map, notice where the ancients put the sun, moon, and stars. The sun and the moon are part of the firmament. They're part of the dome, that thing that's holding up the waters above the earth, separating heaven from earth. If there's no sea, then there's no dome, which means no sun or moon because heaven and earth are back together. Heaven and earth belong together. They're like peanut butter and jelly or pineapples and pizza, right? (laughs) See, half of you are shaking your heads, half of you are nodding. Those of you nodding, you've seen the truth, and the truth... The truth has set you free. (laughs) But here in the concluding pages of our Bibles, we're given this amazing vision of the end of history. And it's not a vision of the earth burning up and being replaced by heaven. It's not a vision of us turning the earth into heaven through our own effort. It's a vision of heaven and earth coming back together like it was in the beginning. In the next chapter, which we're not going to look at, chapter, uh, Revelation 22, very last chapters of our Bibles, we find out that this new creation has a river running through it. And on both sides of the river are these trees of life that produce fruit for the healing of the nations. A river and trees of life. That's Garden of Eden language. At its heart, the Bible is a story Not of people going to heaven, but of heaven coming here. The earth rebels against its creator. So God calls a man named Abraham. 
Abraham's offspring become a nation called Israel, and God dwells among them. God lives in their midst. Heaven becomes a reality in their borders. Then in Jesus, God takes on flesh and dwells among us. And what does Jesus do? Jesus goes around healing people, feeding people, restoring people to community, undoing all the damage of sin and death that have separated heaven and earth, bit by bit, manifesting the kingdom of heaven here. And when the powers that be crucify Jesus, he defeats death with the resurrection and brings about a new chapter in the history of creation. That's the story of our Bibles. And it culminates with the reunion of heaven and earth. Heaven is coming here. What are the implications of an idea like that? How would it change our hearts and our missions as a church if our hope isn't about escape, but about being part of God bringing heaven here? Well, for one, I think what happens on earth matters to God. That's number one. Whether we're talking the environment, politics, injustice, global conflict, all of these things matter to God. They're not secondary. They're not distractions. They're not realities we can just ignore in the hope that someday we're going to get out of here. These are manifestations of the sin and evil that are drawing heaven and earth apart. And we are called to manifest heaven on earth. Our job isn't to turn the earth into heaven. That's an important distinction. That would be that evolutionary optimism thing I talked about a few minutes ago. The work of reuniting heaven and earth is ultimately up to God. Our invitation is to participate in what God is doing by manifesting that reality here and now. When we do the work of the church, when we clothe people and feed people, when we sit with people and share our faith, when we comfort people, when we work for restoration in our communities, we're manifesting little pockets of heaven here on earth. You can think of it as tilling the soil, preparing the earth for the new creation God is bringing about in Christ. And we do this work because we already know how the story ends. The resurrection of Jesus is like a movie trailer that gives away the whole plot. I hate it when that happens. We've seen the end of the story in Christ. John's vision in the book of Revelation takes that glimpse and applies it to all of creation. And that's what we've been called to do as well. We live in a radically individualistic culture. And the gospel, as it often gets presented, has been radically individualized. It's all about me, my soul, my salvation, my relationship with God. Me, 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 me. If anything, this revelation of God reuniting heaven and earth gives us a broader context for understanding our own salvation. It gives us a broader context for the gospel. It's not all about me. It's not about you and your salvation. 
the, the gospel, what God is up to, is much bigger than that. It's much more cosmic in scope. Most people in our culture have heard that radically individualized version of the gospel, the version that's all about you. And many have rejected it. But a cosmic vision of the gospel? The good news of a God who's out to redeem all of creation? A God who created the earth, got rejected by the earth, but is rescuing the earth anyway out of love? The good news of a God who's putting the world back together in Christ? A God who's reuniting heaven and earth and inviting us all to participate and to be reunited with God in the process? I don't think many people have heard that message. And I don't know for sure, but I think that's a gospel message people might pay attention to. Let's pray. God of heaven and earth, thank you for the cosmic scope of your saving work. Thank you for your beautiful and mysterious plan to bring heaven here. We praise you for the new reality you have, are bringing to this earth through the resurrection of Jesus. And we pray for the grace to live into that reality each and every day. So in the powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at Brockport FB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.